Hey, everybody. So great to see you. This week, we get to continue a series we've called The Perfect Blend. And as many of you know, it's my attempt to speak into that divisive intersection of religion and politics in our world today. Now, these talks have all sorts of wonderful potential to make us feel, well, a bit uncomfortable. But my hope is that in the end, we will be better for it. So now, if you were with us last week, you likely remember that I began our conversation by introducing a question that drives this entire series, and it's specifically directed at those of us who are followers of Jesus. The question goes like this. Are you willing to put your faith filter in front of your political filter. In other words, as you engage in conversations about politics during this election season and then as we move forward, are you willing to be a Christian first and then a Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Independent second? Perhaps more importantly, are you willing to follow Jesus even when following Jesus creates tension between you and your political party? Now, to be clear, in this series, I'm not suggesting that you abandon your political party. Rather, I'm suggesting that if we really take what Jesus said seriously, we must not allow our nation's divided political climate to divide our church. Unity was a huge deal to Jesus, and it really should be a huge deal to us as well. In fact, as you may recall, shortly before he was crucified, Jesus prayed that his church would exhibit unity amid diversity. He prayed that we would be one. And he knew that oneness would necessitate that we figure out a way to disagree politically while at the same time loving unconditionally. Now, now when you read the sections of Jesus' life, the accounts of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you quickly see that everybody Jesus encountered wanted him to be on their side of divisive political issues, whatever their side happened to be. And that's very true today. Both of the main political parties in our country are convinced that Jesus would be on their side if he came back to earth today. Republicans are convinced because of the things they value. Democrats are convinced because of their priority to care for people. And, and here's the thing. Neither party is totally wrong or totally right. In fact, if you were to challenge me to write a talk that demonstrated that the Republican platform is aligned with the teachings of Jesus, I could do that. And if you challenged me to write a talk that demonstrated that the platform of the Democrats is aligned with the teachings of Jesus, I could do that too. Because when you interpret the words of Jesus through a pre-existing political filter, it's amazing how often he agrees with you. And that explains how both parties can quote Jesus during their political rallies. But see, here's why that can be so dangerous. If you read the New Testament honestly, you quickly realize something, and it's a bit shocking. It, it goes like this. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He actually came to take over. He came to earth to introduce us to something he called the kingdom of God, a way of life where those with wealth and power leverage that wealth and power for the benefit of those who have less wealth and power. And he invited everybody to be a part of it. Then he modeled this upside-down kingdom by laying his life down for us rather than demanding that we lay down our lives for him. It's not hard then to see that the kingdom of God will at some level always conflict with the natural way we humans tend to operate. 
That's why the kingdom of God will, at some level, always conflict with your political party's platform. There will always be tension. And th this is key. That's why it's so ill-advised for a church to be divided over a political party. Because at the end of the day, no political party will perfectly line up with all of the kingdom values of Jesus. Even though each party reflects some of the kingdom values of Jesus. Well, as I was preparing for today, I read a book called The Prodigal Prophet by a pastor from New York City named Tim Keller. And in this book, he describes this reality, this political moment in our country brilliantly. He, he says it this way. He writes, thoughtful Christians, all trying to obey God's call, could reasonably appear at different places on the political spectrum with loyalties to different political strategies. Now, if Keller's right, and I think he is, then it's easy to see why it's essential for Jesus followers to be kingdom people first and political people second. If we can do that, then it's actually possible to demonstrate unity amid diversity. Okay, that established with the rest of our time today, I want to explore a really great question. And a few of you actually emailed me this question this week. And to summarize the question, it really only takes one word. And that word goes like this. How? In other words, how exactly is a follower of Jesus supposed to not only tolerate, but actually participate in a common mission with someone who holds dramatically different political perspectives? Someone or a group of someone whose opinions have a tendency to, how shall I put it, make their blood boil. Well, let me frame it a little more personally for you. You might be sitting there asking yourself, how can I endure and not first alter the political musings of my millennial son-in-law? I mean, he attends church, but he sees things completely differently than me. I, I, I kind of think he's a socialist. Or perhaps, how can I appreciate without first agreeing with the mindset of my Christian parents? Who's been, they've been in church for decades, but their political opinions are almost completely opposite to mine. How do we do that? Well, with our time today, I want to do my best to answer those questions. And in order to do that, I, I need to reintroduce you to a first century pastor named Paul. As you may recall, he first steps onto the pages of history as a Jewish religious leader who saw Christianity as a cult that needed to be eradicated. And he did everything in his power to do just that until the day he came face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And in that moment, he realized that he had been wrong. And then he went on to spend the rest of his life telling everyone he could about Jesus. He wrote letters to Christian communities that made their way into the New Testament of our Bible. And in two of these letters, Paul uses a phrase that I see as a great starting point as we try to answer that great question, how? The phrase is something Paul calls the law of Christ. And most scholars believe that Paul's expression, the law of Christ, was his shorthand for the new command Jesus gave his followers the night of the Last Supper. And if you spend any time around here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, during that meal, Jesus looks out at his followers, says, hey guys, I, I need your eye contact. This is super important. And then he said this. He said, a new command I give you. He said, love one another. And they would have thought, well, Jesus, that's not a new command. We already had that one. And he said, I'm not done. He kept talking. He said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. That is a, that is a very different sort of love. And then he goes on to say, by this, by this self-sacrificing love, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And in this moment, 
Jesus instituted a new command to go along with the new covenant, the, the new terms of relationship between God and people that he would soon establish when he died on the cross. And this new command wasn't to be in addition to the 613 commands in the Old Testament that his disciples had been taught to follow. This new command was intended to displace and then replace them all. Notice that Jesus intended sacrificial love to be the trademark of his followers. It was to be the defining ethic for their behavior. And in fact, uh, in that light, every other New Testament imperative could rightly be seen as an application of what sacrificial love requires. That's what Paul means when he says the law of Christ. Now, let me show you the context around those moments when Paul uses the phrase. The first comes uh, in a letter to Christians living in the Greek city of Corinth. And, and during his letter, Paul notes the depth of his commitment to help others understand the message of Jesus. Here's, here's how he phrases it. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave. And the Greek word there could be translated slave or servant. I made myself a servant to everyone to win as many as possible. It's like Paul wants his readers to know that his mission is urgent and that he'll do anything short of sinning in order to convince Gentiles, non-Jewish people, that God had done something in the world on their behalf. He continues, he says, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. And, and I know what some of you are thinking. You get to a passage like this and you think, well, this is why I don't read my Bible by myself. <laughs> what in the world is he talking about? Well, what Paul is saying to these people is, basically, I became like a Gentile in order to reach Gentiles, even though I'm Jewish and still under God's law. And, and a Jewish reader would, would say, okay, wait, wait, wait a minute. You just said you're going to live like someone not under God's law, even though you're still under God's law what do you mean, Paul? And, and Paul would have responded, great question, thanks for asking. Here's how it works. Because of my faith in Jesus, I'm no longer under the law of Moses. That covenant was fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross. In fact, the last words to leave Jesus' lips before he dismisses his spirit are, it is finished. He says, but, but now, I'm under the law of Christ, and as such, still very much under the authority of God. And the law of Christ tells me that I'm to love others as Jesus loved me. And to love others as Jesus loved me, I need to do whatever it takes for them to see what God has done for them through Jesus' death and resurrection, because it is in every way imaginable, hashtag game changer. That, I mean, I had to update the image, you know what I'm saying? I and mean, if you were drifting, welcome back, right? But, but but that's what Paul means when he says the law of Christ in a letter to a church in Corinth. Well, he uses the phrase a second time in a letter to Christians living in the Roman province of Galatia. In this letter, he encourages them. He writes, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, when you help others navigate life's challenges, whether they're financial or relational or physical or even spiritual, you're loving someone as God, through Christ, loved you. You're fulfilling the law of Christ. You're doing what Jesus told his followers to do. And here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, this mandate is for you. And it's for me, regardless of our political position. 
The law of Christ should inform your conscience individually and our conscience collectively. Practically, that means we should all be disturbed, irritated, and convicted when we see injustice. We should all feel convicted when we accidentally disrespect someone. It should bother us when we see people undermining their future through destructive choices. And when we see anyone within the church violating the law of Christ, it should bother us. Because according to Jesus, what's best for people is always what's best. Every single time. Well, as early Christians independent of their political perspectives, began to live under the law of Christ, things in their world began to change for the better. And I did a bit of study historically. I want to give you a couple of examples because this is part of the story of our faith. Uh, Consider humanity's perspective on slavery. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine, but there was a time when almost everyone believed that some people should be owned by other people. In fact, 300 years before the time of Jesus, a Greek philosopher named Aristotle wrote a book called Politics, in which he argued that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, it's expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjugation or subjection and others for rule. It's like in Aristotle's mind, slavery was not only necessary, it was desirable. He simply couldn't imagine a world that worked without some people ruling over and controlling and owning other people. And this perspective went largely unchallenged for hundreds of years. But then by the fourth century, after Christianity had taken hold and begun to shape the Roman Empire, a bishop named Augustine, a part of the church, wrote the following He said, slavery is the result of sin. In other words, slavery isn't expedient. It isn't desirable. It isn't the way things are supposed to be. Something that had always been assumed to be right was being challenged by the application of the law of Christ by early Christians. Here, One more example. For much of human history, people have believed that infanticide, abandoning infants to the elements was good for society. Uh, They saw the practice as the right thing to do. Uh, A baby would be born and the baby would be unwanted because maybe it was a girl and in the ancient world, girls did not have the same value as boys. Perhaps it was some physical abnormality that made it undesirable or perhaps a, a husband suspected that his wife had been impregnated by another man. But whatever the reason, people would take newborn babies to the edge of a forest or just outside the walls of their city or near a river and then abandon the baby and return home. Here's why this is so startling. According to the laws of the ancient land, they weren't legally culpable for allowing the child to die. With the full blessing of their culture, they had simply surrendered the baby to the fates. And if the gods wanted to intervene and save the child, then that was up to the gods. And that was just the way it was. But Christians from the very beginning, disagreed with this practice. They condemned infant abandonment and even began to adopt these abandoned children into their families. What's fascinating to me is that neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament specifically required them to do that, at least not directly. But followers of Jesus came to understand that the law of Christ 
required it. They were to love others as they, through Christ, had been loved. And they realized that they were not entirely unlike helpless abandoned babies when they were adopted as God's children. That while they were still sinners, incapable of self-rescue, Jesus gave his life for them. And with that understanding, a tension with infant abandonment surfaced. And so Christians began to rescue these babies. Moreover, as Christianity began to make inroads into the Roman Empire, the entire culture began to be impacted. Until finally, in the year 318 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine declared infanticide, infant abandonment, a crime. Don't miss this, something that had not bothered the collective conscience of the Roman Empire for hundreds of years suddenly became unacceptable, and that happened because of the unity that emerged in the church around the teachings of Jesus. And in spite of the many areas of diversity they carried based on their backgrounds, perspectives, and experiences. You see, when the law of Christ informs an individual or a village or a city or a nation's conscience, things change. They change for the better. And historically, our country has been made better through an application of the law of Christ. See, Jesus knew 2,000 years ago that this single new covenant command was so powerful, so disruptive, and so ahead of its time, it would still have the power to change the world thousands of years later. And this is why, by the way, the church is so important, because part of our responsibility is to leverage what we can in order to shape the conscience of our nation. But we can only do that if we stay unified. We can't be divided, especially over political candidates that come and go. See, the church represents a kingdom that goes on forever, and so it's imperative that we figure out how to be one in spite of our political differences. Okay, that established with the rest of our time, I want to get really, really practical. I want to give you a way to appreciate the political perspectives of someone who does not share your political perspectives, someone who is as uninterested in changing their political perspectives as you are. Ever met anybody like that? And, and I know that sounds impossible, but it really isn't, and, and here's why. You and I must always remember something that has probably never been more true than today. It goes like this. Where you stand depends on where you sit. Where you stand depends on where you sit. Sociologists refer to that statement as Miles' Law, and it was named for a man named Rufus Miles. And if you have a baby uh, in the oven right now, and it's a boy, and you're looking for a name, might I just suggest Rufus to you? That It's underutilized and underappreciated. But uh, Rufus Miles served in the Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson administrations during the 1950s and 60s in our country. And Miles' Law just points out that we all have a cultural context from which we see the world. He calls that where we sit. And where we sit is impacted by where we live, how we were raised, where we were educated, what we've been told, what we've seen, and even how much money we have. Our experiences in the world help us shape how we see the world, and they shape our political understandings as well. It's easy to see with regards to other people. And if I were to ask you, why do you think your dad was a Republican or why do you think your mom was a Democrat and how did they exist in the same house, right? You'd have an answer. And your answer wouldn't relate to their theology, what they thought about God as much as it would relate to the world in which they were raised. And whether we realize it or not, the same principle is true for you and for me. 
If we're honest, none of our political views were shaped in a vacuum. And simply pausing to recognize this is actually a mark of maturity. Pausing to recognize this actually activates a way forward. Because you gain understanding as to why other people believe the way they do, and understanding always chases division away. So here's, here's what I'd love you to consider. Between now and the election especially, would you remember that where someone stands depends on where they sit? I'm telling you, that recognition allows us to open our hands and our minds and our hearts to another person without changing our political viewpoint. I'll close our time together by sharing three simple suggestions to put all this into practice, and they're super easy to remember because, wait for it, they all start with the letter L. Seriously. My seminary profs who taught me to teach would be so proud of me today. Generally, they are not. But here, here are the three L words. It goes like this. Uh, listen, learn, and love. First, I want to encourage you to listen to people who don't experience the world the way you do. Republican or Democrat, young or old, black or white, gay or straight, married, single, police officers and people who struggle with police officers. Begin to really listen to people who don't share your background and your experiences. Second, once you start listening, I I want you to try to learn something. Be Be curious about what you don't know and what you don't understand. Pay attention. Be a student and not just a critic. That's really important because it's really hard for critics to learn. And when you quit learning, something toxic starts to happen inside of you. But on the other hand, where you really listen, something redemptive happens. You start to realize that everybody's behavior makes sense to them, and and everybody's politics makes perfect sense to them. And people stand where they stand because they sit where they sit. So listen and learn. And then finally, love. And this this is the most important of all. I want to encourage you to love. And practically, that means that you never burn a relational bridge over a political view. Because that's not something Jesus would ever want you to do. However different their perspective, that person who's sitting next to you is someone for whom Jesus died. So would, would you join me in this journey to listen and to learn and to love? I'm convinced it is the way forward, and it's the practical way that we can maintain unity amid the diversity of the church. All right, once again this week, I want to leave you with a few questions to discuss over lunch or in your big idea group. Um, and as we say each week, discussion is a great way to move this content from concept to reality in your life. And, and so just three questions today. The first one uh, sort of summarizes the teaching, and I'd love you to do it in your own words, but it goes like this. Uh, how can we follow the law of Christ but still disagree politically? Uh, how does that actually work in your life? And if you struggle with it, that's, that's fair, and, and just, you know, I would encourage you to be honest about that. N- number two, um, how would you rate yourself in trying to understand someone else's 
mindset. And, and maybe like on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being, man, I always can see other people's perspectives, very empathic, a 1 being, I don't even know what that means, right? Um, and after you rate yourself, have someone you know well rate you as well. It'd be interesting to see if, if their perspective is the same as yours. And again, we're just trying to do things right. Uh, and number three, um, it goes like this, do you believe you'd think differently with regards to politics if you had a different set of past experiences? Great questions to engage with as we approach the election on November 3rd and try to love along the way. And so now I would love to just close us in a brief word of prayer. Would you join me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the light that invaded our planet when your son was born. We thank you for his words that resonate so profoundly thousands of years after they were first spoken. We thank you for the beauty amid the diversity of your church, and I pray that we would all align ourselves squarely behind the teachings of your Son so that we can leverage whatever influence we have to make this world a little more like you want it to be. And so we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Use us to bring a bit of the world, the way of heaven to the here and now. In the meantime, give us patience as we engage political conversations. And may we never forget that above all, we are to love one another as we have been loved by you. It is in the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Grace and peace, friends. We'll see you next week for part three of The Perfect Blend. Dog.